Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Well, good evening. Salamat malam, bapak, bapak, dan ibu, ibu, ibu. My name is Paul Martins. I'm uh, the chair of the Australia-Indonesia Business Council here in Queensland. And uh, welcome to the Griffith Asia Institute here at Southbank uh, for our talk on the upcoming presidential and parliamentary elections. Uh, to begin with, let me acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today and pay my respect to the elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here with us today. Uh, can I also acknowledge our special guests in the room? Uh, soon we will have Dr Mark Robinson MP, the member for Ujuru, Cleveland, and member and, uh, of the Parliamentary Crime and Corruption Commission. He's uh, been delayed, but is on his way. Uh, Mr. Kasper Kuiper, Honorary Consul of the Netherlands, uh, Consulate in Brisbane. Uh, David Wijaya, our Vice Chairman for the Australia-Indonesia Business Council here in Queensland, and no doubt well known to you all. We also have uh, Ben Semahu, uh, another of our board members. Thanks, Ben. Uh, can I uh, acknowledge and thank Professor Caitlin Byrne, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute and Griffith University. Uh, this event would not have been possible without uh, Griffith Asia Institute, so thank you very much for your hospitality and, and making tonight possible. And of course, uh, tonight's speakers, the reason we're all here tonight, to hear uh, Professor Colin Brown from Griffith Asia Institute, Griffith University, and Dr Denny Ali, Deputy Head uh, of the Department of Marketing at the Griffith Business School at Griffith University. And we also do have uh, apologies from Professor Carolyn Evans, the Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University. So ladies and gentlemen, again welcome, thank you for joining us. Uh, my uh, history with Indonesian elections uh, uh, is quite interesting. I uh, first went to Indonesia under uh, former President Suharto. I was there for Gus Dua. Who remembers Gus Dua? Uh, that was a very interesting time in Indonesian politics. But uh, what a period of time, what challenges he embraced uh, and what challenges uh, he undertook uh, in the economy in Indonesia. So that was a really interesting time. Uh, I then was there from Gustur to Megawati. Who remembers Megawati? Uh, more hands went up in the air. And Jokowi, of course, I was there for Jokowi. And there's two hands of triumph in the air for Jokowi. So uh, uh, I've seen a fair bit in 20-odd uh, years of my uh, ex exposure to Indonesia. Um, and uh, as I was just commenting with a, a few people outside, uh, there's never a dull moment in Indonesian elections. It's certainly very interesting and very entertaining. So tonight, the Griffith Asia Institute the Australia-Indonesia Business Council are delighted to have you here to hear from adjunct, adjunct Professor Colin Brown from the Griffith Asia Institute and Dr Denny Ali from the Griffith Business School. Uh, Professor Brown will address political aspects of the elections and the significance of the elections for the Australia-Indonesia relationship. Uh, now, uh, Professor Brown um, uh, and I are known to each other. He was my professor at Griffith University uh, many moons ago, we won't say the years, but they were the 90s, the early 90s, uh, and he taught me uh, foundation studies. And as he's reminded me, we all make mistakes, and he did pass me on occasion, uh, but, but not always. Uh, Dr. Ali will address the economic and business aspects of the elections. 
we will also, after the presentations, we'll have an opportunity for a Q&A session. So if you've got a burning question, let me know. I will have a few uh, questions to uh, address, and we do have a roving mic. Uh, Kalia here from the Griffith Asia Institute will uh, assist uh, inquiries with inquiries. So to get us going, because we've got uh, a lot to cover, uh, Professor Colin Brown is a member of the Griffith Asia Institute, Griffith University and a life member of the Australia-Indonesia Business Council. From 2009 to 2013, he was a professor in the Department of International Relations, Parahyangan Catholic University in Bandung, Indonesia, and before that, Dean of the Faculty of Media, Society and Culture at Curtin University of Technology in Perth, from 2003 to 2008. He has held positions at several other Australian universities, as well as Gajamada University in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. His primary teaching and research interests are in modern Southeast Asian uh, studies, and particular Indonesian history, politics and econ economics. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics and a PhD in history from the University of Queensland and is a Nati qualified professional level translator and interpreter between the Indonesian and English languages. Please join me in welcoming Professor Colin Brown. Thank you, Paul. When you get such a generous introduction as that, the most sensible thing to do is to say thank you and leave. <laughs> because anything I'm going to say now, people are going to say, but I thought he was going to be better than that. Anyway. Um, let me start out with just a disclaimer, which is fairly obvious, but I will make it nonetheless. I'm not Indonesian. I'm Australian. Well, I do know some Indonesians who look like me, but not very many. My view of Indonesia is the view of a non-Indonesian. It's the view of an outsider of Indonesia. I don't think it's a complete outsider. I've spent several years living there. But I'm not Indonesian, and my perspectives are going to be those of an interested but outside observer. I used to get worried about my view of Indonesia being different from Indonesians' view of Indonesia. I no longer am worried about that for a simple reason. There's not one Indonesia. There's lots of Indonesians, just as there are lots of Australians. So, with that qualification, let me start. As many of you will know, the elections that Indonesia will hold on Wednesday represent the largest single one-day election ever held. When the country's almost 193 million voters arrive at the polls, they'll receive five different ballot papers, one for the president and vice president, one for each of the two houses of the national parliament, one for their provincial assembly, and one for their local government council. There's a total of 20,528 seats to fill, more than 300,000 candidates. If every eligible voter, in fact, voted, there would be over 960 million ballot papers to check secure and tally up. You'll be pleased and I suspect relieved to know I'm not going to try to work, work my way through all those numbers. I'll be focusing primarily on the presidential contest with some words about the national parliamentary elections. First, very briefly, the process itself. Luckily, the presidential election process is straightforward. It's a two-horse race. Whoever gets the most votes wins. The national parliamentary election is a bit more complicated. Of the two houses of the national parliament, the lower house, the DPR, is by far the most important. 
And for the DPR election, the nation is divided into multi-member electorates based on the 34 provinces. Candidates are proposed by political parties which nominate tickets of candidates for each electorate. The allocation of seats is a bit complicated, which means I don't understand it, but it's more or less proportional, with the important proviso that parties have to get at least 4% of the vote in order to secure any seats in the Parliament. So, who are the presidential candidates? One team consists of the incumbent president, Jokowi, normally referred to, of course, as Ahok, and his vice-presidential running mate, Ma'ruf Amin, always referred to as Ma'ruf Amin. Jokowi is well-known, I think, here in Australia. A self-made businessman, he progressed through the mayoralty of the central Javanese city of Solo, to the governorship of Jakarta, to the presidency of Indonesia last time around in 2014. Ma'ruf Amin is much less well-known, at least in Australia. He's 75 years old and makes his mark primarily these days, although he's had a number of different uh, uh, qualifications, makes his mark these days most recently through his position as chair of the Islamic Scholars Council, the MUI. He has, as Kevin Evans, another graduate of Griffith University, Kevin Evans notes, impeccable Islamic credentials for traditional and rural Muslim voters, he carries considerable authority and religious legitimacy. And that's clearly why Jokowi chose him as his vice presidential running mate, to help Jokowi solidify his Islamic credentials in an electorate which is increasingly concerned about such things. Jokowi is supported by a coalition of primarily secular political parties, together with three of the older, more mainstream Islamic ones. Jokowi's rival for the... Jokowi's rival for the presidency is Prabowo Subianto, the man he defeated last time around in 2014. Prabowo is one of the great survivors of Indonesian politics. In the latter years of the Sahata regime in the late 1990s, he was commanding general of the army's strategic reserve and Suharto's son-in-law. Since then, he's been involuntarily discharged from the army, divorced, banned from entering the United States, gone into political exile in Jordan, then reinvented himself, first as a successful businessman and subsequently as a politician. His vice presidential running mate is Santiago Uno. At 49, the youngest of the leadership contestants, He's an American-educated businessman. In 2017, he was elected vice-governor of Jakarta in the election which saw the defeat of the incumbent Bazuki Purnama, better known as Ahok. He is, to quote Kevin Evans again, in many respects, the poster boy and role model for the aspirational urban Muslim middle class. Party support for Prabowo comes from a smaller number of secular parties plus the more radical Islamic ones. What are the political issues the candidates are promoting? Both candidates' manifestos say they want to strengthen respect for and protection of basic human rights for all citizens. 
Prabowo, for instance, says he would eliminate the threat of persecution for individuals, sorry, of individuals, organizations and groups, whatever their backgrounds. In his manifesto, Jokowi also attacked corruption, which he described as extraordinarily criminal and promised to strengthen the Corruption Eradication Commission. Prabowo subsequently made similar remarks. On defence, they both say they will strengthen the Indonesian military, improving its weapons systems, its training, pay and conditions, and its cyber defence cap capability. Prabowo has also stressed reinforcing the military units guarding Indonesia's maritime boundaries and its outermost islands. In the fourth presidential TV debate, Prabowo went further still, arguing that Indonesia's military was weak through being chronically underfunded. Indonesia's military budget, he says, was just 5% of the total budget, compared with Singapore, which spends 30% of its budget on the military. Indonesia, Prabowo said, should double its defence spending. In the debate, Jokowi countered this by saying that even though he was a civilian, he had great faith in the military and its capacity to defend the nation, implying, of course, that Prabowo, despite the fact that he's a retired general, somehow had less faith. If you've seen the debate, there then follows a rather unedifying exchange of statements along the lines of, I'm more pro-military than you are. It's all rather Australian, actually. In their manifestos, both candidates recognised the need to counter terrorist threats to Indonesia. Jokowi talked about this effort in terms of raising the understanding of the state ideology, developing the education system, strengthening the legal system. Prabowo's position in his manifesto was similar, though he put more emphasis on the military's role in countering terrorism, Jokowi focused more on the police. In the first presidential debate, Jokowi also stressed the role that Islamic institutions, such as the MUI, could play in countering terrorism. Indeed, Ma'ruf Amin asserted that the, the MUI had already issued a fatwa, which stated clearly that terrorism was forbidden. Prabowo argued that one of the basic causes of radicalism was economic. So many people cannot see a bright future for themselves, he said, because of their economic needs. So for Prabowo, counter-terrorism also requires poverty alleviation. But perhaps the most interesting, to me, thing that Prabowo said was that, was that in his long experience of fighting terrorism, he found that it was often the case that terrorists were, in fact, and I quote, sent into Indonesia by foreign powers, disguised as Muslims, whereas they were, in fact, not Muslim. And here Prabowo is revealing not only his views on radicalism and terrorism, but also his argument that Indonesia is under threat from foreigners and foreign powers. And we see that theme running through a lot of what he says. On foreign policy generally, both stress the need for Indonesia to take an active but independent role in bilateral, multilateral and global forums such as ASEAN and the UN. Both stress their support for Palestine. In the fourth presidential debate, Jokowi stressed the positive role he said Indonesia was playing as a mediator in various current international crises, 
including the Rohingya crisis. But Prabowo lambasted him for running what he called a meek foreign policy, what he termed, using the English phrase, a nice guy policy. It's fine to be a mediator, he said, but other international players were not giving Indonesia the respect it deserved. Indonesia's foreign policy needed to be more vigorous and more directed to protecting its national security from external threats. One striking omission from both candidates' manifestos was any direct mention of the South China Sea and any potential for a clash with China. Nor did it figure prominently in the presidential TV debates. This is despite the fact that in recent times there have been a number of clashes between Indonesian Coast Guard vessels and Chinese fishing boats within what the area of Indonesia claims as its exclusive economic zone around the Natuna Islands in the South China Sea. Nevertheless, in different contexts, Jokowi has placed increased emphasis on the defence of the Natunas. He's, he's agreed to, or well, they have already established, an increased military presence in the region. And as I said, Prabowo has also argued strongly for reinforcement of Indonesia's military presence on its outlying islands, and that's primarily the Natuna region. But it's interesting, nonetheless, that neither of them mentions this in their manifesto, and it gets almost no discussion in the TV debates. One respected Indonesian observer said of the two candidates' foreign policy objectives, Jokowi focused more on issues such as developing good trade relations and so forth, but Prabowo placed greater priority on defending the territorial integrity of the nation. However, she said, overall, there seems to be no significant differences between the two candidates' basic positions. But how much weight should we place on these stated basic positions, these manifestos, these statements in TV debates? Well, I would argue we should place less weight rather than more weight. In a very real sense, neither Jokowi nor Prabowo is a very strong political leader. Each has made major compromises to get as far as they have today. Each will have to make more compromises to stay in power. Where are these pressures to compromise coming from? Some of these pressures are simply economic. Is the country in a financial condition, for instance, to support doubling defence expenditure? Denny will be looking at the business side of the elections in a moment, so I'm not going to address that. But other pressures come from within the political system itself. The system is presidential, but power is shared between the president and the parliament. Presidents need the concurrence of the parliament in order to have legislation passed. But there's no one dominant political party in the parliament, as is the case in Australia, generally. In the US, the UK, well, not right now, uh, and so forth. In the current parliament, before the election, the biggest single party is the PDIP, of which Chikori is a member. But PDIP has less than 20% of the total seats in the parliament. In order to get legislation through the parliament right now, Jokowi needs the support of a coalition of at least four political parties. Presidents cannot rely in parliament on the coalitions which supported their election bids. The coalitions supporting presidential candidates exist in order to get their candidate elected and then to be rewarded with the allocation of cabinet posts. But beyond that, 
they have a high degree of volatility. Presidents thus typically face an ongoing battle to keep enough parliamentary votes on their side to enable them to govern. This frequently requires them to compromise on the platforms they took to the elections. This situation might be changing a bit if, as predicted, only seven parties win seats in the next parliament. There are ten parties in the current one. But we still need to remember that coalitions win presidential elections. They do not guarantee the president the capacity to govern once elected. But there have been political influences from outside the parliament as well. In recent years, we've... Whoops. I beg your pardon. Nobody told me my, that my clicker wasn't working properly. Or I wasn't working the clicker. <laughs> so extra parliamentary groups which are increasingly doing what parliaments used to do to um, presidents. Since 1945, Indonesia has always seen political tension between those who want Islam to play a defining role in national life and those who, while acknowledging the importance of Islam, nonetheless don't give it such precedence. Today, the former group is on the rise. It's become almost a cliché to observe that Indonesia has become more religiously observant and socially conservative in recent years, probably more so, probably more so than any time since independence. And this climate is reflected in the rise of increasingly influential conservative Islamist organisations. The best established of these organisations is the Islamic Defenders Front, the FBI. Until 2016, the FBI was a largely fringe group, better known for extortion rackets and standover tactics than its religious activities. But in 2016, the FBI latched onto the bid by Bazuki Chahapurnama, Ahok, to be re-elected as governor of Jakarta. Ahok, of course, is a Christian of Chinese ethnicity. The FBI played this issue very skillfully, making effective use of social media and mass mobilization to portray itself as the primary defender of Muslim interests against an onslaught of Christianization. And it was successful, not only in defeating Ahok, but of course he was ultimately jailed for blasphemy. Today, the FBI openly calls for Indonesia to become an Islamic state, led by Muslims, and in which non-Muslims play no meaningful role. And it openly supports Prabowo. There's a variety of other Islamist organizations as well, probably the, most, uh, the best known around the place, the 212 alumni, which is a, a grouping of people and organizations which supported a massive demonstration in Jakarta against Ahok on the 2nd of December, hence the name 212, uh, in 2016, uh, demonstrations against Ahok. Both former President Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono and current President Jokowi had previously largely turned a blind eye to, to many of these groups, believing perhaps that they could be manipulated. But the manipulation has been the other way around. Hardline Islamist groups, as one observer puts it, have pushed national government ministers to take repressive stances towards homosexuality, religious minorities, and people who have, sorry, and people who supposedly blaspheme Islam. 
these organizations play political poker better than Jokowi or Prabowo. The second, I'll get it right this time, the second extra-parliamentary group I want to mention, albeit only briefly, is the military. On the 31st of January this year, a group of retired military officers, reportedly 2,500 strong, declared their support for Prabowo. A fortnight later, on the 10th of February, a thousand retired officers declared their support for Jokowi. We need to look at these two events in the context of two other events which have occurred in the last 12 months. One was the passage of an anti-terrorist law, a new anti-terrorist law, last year, which gave a much bigger role to the military in internal policing of terrorism matters than had been the case since the end of the Sahata regime. Since the end of Sahata, by and large, anti-terrorism was a police activity. But this anti-terrorism law of last year gives the military a much bigger role in that. The second was a move by Jokowi to allow more senior military officers to take up positions in the civilian bureaucracy. Jokowi justifies this by saying, we need to find things to do for military officers who can't find military things to do. It's not a good idea to have unemployed colonels running around the place. So you find them a job in the civilian bureaucracy. But many of his critics say this sounds a lot like the justification, sorry, sounds a lot like the policy that Suharto had of having military officers playing two roles in society. A military role in defending society, but a role in the government itself. And they are worried that this indicates the military is, if not coming back to its Suharto days, nobody really says that, but getting an increasingly important role. One commentator suggested all of this is evidence of the growing militarization of Indonesian democracy. Where all this will go, I don't know. Neither Jokowi nor Prabowo can afford to ignore military issues. But I suspect that the militarization of democracy hypothesis is too negative. Evan Laxmana, a leading Indonesian analyst, wrote earlier this year, Indonesian democracy is certainly fraught with challenges, but the label militarization seems unwarranted. Now I'd like to take, and now I'm going to go over my limit as I warned that I might. Now I'd like to take a brief look at a more benign category of extra-parliamentary influencers, young people. The Indonesian electorate is a young electorate. About 44% of eligible voters are aged between 17 and 35. About 7% are first-time voters. Both presidential candidates are working hard to win these votes. However, some commentators are arguing that the crucial question about young voters is not going to be who do they vote for, but will they vote at all? There's growing concern that the turnout for this election may be the lowest since the fall of Suharto. There's a growing sense of disengagement from politics by young people and by other community groups as well. If this results in a lower turnout than in previous elections, the biggest loser will almost certainly be Jokowi. Two foreign observers wrote recently, Jokowi's campaign team is worried that the high number of undecided voters is a sign that many who voted for him five years ago will sit out the April election. These fence-sitters include liberals disappointed with the president's weak commitment to resolving chronic human rights abuses and religious minorities concerned about his unwillingness to denounce the blasphemy charges against Ahok 
and his pro-Islamic campaign rhetoric. And at this point, I'd like to introduce to you the third ticket for the presidential elections. Nurhadi and Aldo looks genuine. And the presidential candidate, Nurhadi, has been interviewed on national television. But it's not genuine. It's a hoax candidacy, as is made clear if you look at any of their campaign images and read their slogans. If you have time, I'll go through this one, but just to give you a, a, a taste of it. The team Nurhadi Aldo is known by an acronym made up of the last two letters of Nurhadi's name and the last three letters of Aldo's name. Think about it. The people behind the last two letters of Nurhadi and the last three of Aldo. That's the level of humour, by the way. The people behind this hoax say they are reflecting the exasperation with the established political elites felt by many younger, urban and educated Indonesians. And indeed, this campaign has been marked by hoaxes and fake news spread by social media. There was a video clip circulating late last year showing three women supposedly campaigning for Prabowo. And they asserted that if Jokowi won, then he would forbid mosques to broadcast the call to prayer, outlaw the wearing of the hijab, and permit same-sex marriage. Nonsense. But it got a wide circulation. There was the infamous photo dragging up a long-standing charge against Jokowi that he was, a, or at least had been, a member of the banned Communist Party of Indonesia, the PKI. This image circulated in social media. The man speaking is D.N. Aidit, chairman of the PKI before it was banned in 1965. The person whose head is circled, based I think primarily on his hairstyle, is supposed to be Jokowi. But the picture was taken in 1955 and Jokowi was born in 1961. <laughs> it's not a one-way street. Jokowi supporters have also engaged in hoaxes or fake news. Here's a picture posted on Facebook on the 11th of December last year. The man on the right is Prabowo. Needless to say, Prabowo has denied that he's a Christian priest. And here's my favourite. According to the fact-check unit of Tempo magazine, one report doing the round says, sorry, says 500,000 Chinese soldiers have already arrived in Indonesia and are ready to burn the country down. You'll not be surprised to learn that the fact-checkers found this report was untrue. So, who will win the election? I'll deal with that question in the third part of the presentation this evening. My apologies for going over time. Thank you, Colin. Entertaining as ever. I do enjoy those hoaxes, though. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure now to uh, introduce Dr. Denny Ali, who is the Deputy Head of the Department of Marketing uh, at Griffith Business School and a member of the Griffith Asia Institute here at Griffith University. Uh, Denny received his PhD in Marketing from the School of Marketing at the University of New South Wales, following a Master's in International Business from St. Mary's University in Minnesota in the United States, and a Bachelor's Degree in Architecture from Petra Christian University in Surabaya, Indonesia. His research focuses on social issues and social changes through multidisciplinary approaches. His particular research interests are corporate social responsibility, 
social marketing, consumer need, consumer ethics, and digital marketing. Please welcome Dr. Denny Ali. All right. Thank you, Paul. I wish I could say that I am Colin's student as well. That I'm, I'm not. I wish I could be Colin's student. Uh, uh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, uh, Kevin. Thank you, uh, David, for the opportunity. It, it is really an honor for me to be to share the insight. So, what I'm going to do um, tonight um, is I'm, I'm going to present the economic and business aspect of the election by looking actually at the the present and hopefully to propose the future of the relationship between Indonesia and Australia and based on the result of the election. Uh, to, describe the, to describe the relationship between the two countries, as suggested by many, Indonesia is actually the stranger next door to Australia. We are close, but we don't know a lot about each other. So let's look at the present um, situation. Histor historically, Indonesia was able to hold uh, a peaceful election. So with its limitation, uh, election in Indonesia have been considered as free, uh, fair, and peaceful election. So I predict that would be the same this time. So if you look at the, the currency movement during Indonesia election in the last decade, as you can see in the, in the figure behind, looking at the charts, the orange uh, vertical line shows when the election happened. Uh, the first one during Habibie presidency in 1998-1990. And then Wahid presidency in 1999-2001, Megawati presidency 2001, uh, Yudhoyono presidency in 2004, and then Jokowi 2014. If you look at that, the, the election usually do not change the currency. But it has been steadily increased in the last decade, which actually offer um, a challenges for current presidency. So again, if you worry that the impact on, on, on the currency, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a big impact. So if you look at Indonesia, GDP now is at 1.4 trillion, and placing Indonesia at the 16 globally uh, for the size of the economy. Uh, so you can see that it's actually going up with or without the election. And um, GDP per capita in Indonesia now is at 3,800, and GDP growth now is at 5.1%. Population-wise, Indonesia is at 262 million. For the, the past year, Indonesia economy actually faced many challenges, um, including slump in a global demand, and a series of interest uh, rate hikes, as well as the fallout from the United States-China trade war. And I think this will be the focus of the two candidates, as, as um, Colin has mentioned earlier. So, and, and again, the, the main problem is the, the current account balance, which is declining, and we'll, we'll talk about that later on. So if, if you look at, despite the, the size and close proximity to Australia, the economic relationship between the two countries actually remains small. Trade with Australia is around 11.8 billion in 2017. And Indonesia is only not in the top 10, but the 13th largest trading partner, only at 1.7% of the overall transaction. While Australia is Indonesia's 13th largest uh, trading partner, both Indonesia and Australia actually has China as their largest trading partner. Two-way investment, as I've said earlier, 
Indonesia and Australia was valued at about 11.8, uh, with Indonesia invest in Australia, in Indonesia investment is about 10.7, and Indonesia investment in Australia about 1.1 billion. To give you an overview of what is actually being exported and imported, um, major Australian export to Indonesia is crude petroleum, wheat, animals, and coals. And major Australian import from Indonesia also crude petroleum, refined petroleum, wood, and, and maybe not surprising to you, is tobacco manufacturing. And major Australian service export, and this is probably what we can focus in the future, are education related. Uh, personal travel, in, including education, and major Australian service import um, are personal travel, excluding education, and then transport. The challenge for both Indonesia and Australia is both countries are actually complementary to each other. Um, they only have very weak investment and trade links. The total Australian investment in Indonesia is actually less than a percent of Australia's total outbound investment. Uh, US Asia Center working group actually indicate that Indonesia and Australia are relying on natural uh, resource export. Therefore, Indonesia and Australia, they're actually competitors rather than collaborators because both countries are relying on natural export. And this is again, this is the challenge for the new president that they have to overcome in the future. Uh, unfortunately, the low investment numbers from Australia do not reflect Indonesia's rising economy importance. Um, as you can see, that um, Indonesia is predicted to be the fourth largest uh, economy by 2050, and Indonesia is actually the largest economy in Southeast Asia and number 16 economy in the world, as I mentioned earlier. And also, Indonesia is predicted to move from being number 16 largest economy into the top 10 by 2030. And again, it's going to be the fourth largest by 2050. By around 2030, uh, about 70% of Indonesia will be of working age, um, as mentioned by Colin, and supporting a consuming class, consuming power of around 135 million people, and business opportunity around 1.8 trillion. So what is the, I'm gonna talk now about the, the future challenges and opportunity. What, what, what's going to happen post-election. So I think looking at the historical um, relationship between Indonesia and Australia, I think relationship between the two countries will change incrementally through small steps in improving the trade relationship. However, there's, there's a good news that happening in the last few months. Uh, there has been high-level visits actually in the last few years will have more impact in the future, which actually indicates increased interest between the two countries. Recently, uh, Minister for Trade, Tourism and Investment, uh, Simon Birmingham met with the Indonesian counterpart uh, at the East Asia Summit last November 2018. Uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, also accompanied by the Trade, Tourism and Investment Minister, visited Jakarta in September for the annual leaders meeting. And also more importantly, um, Last March, Australia and Indonesia signed the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership, ICPA, which built um, on the commitment under the existing free trade agreement, the ASEAN-Australia-New Zealand free trade agreement across goods, services, and investment. So the signing was actually delayed before um, when Prime Minister announced the government was considered moving Australia, um, Israel Embassy to Jerusalem. There has been a, a few delays because of that. 
So what is significant about this? So and this would probably have an impact also the election. What is significant about the new trade agreement is that ICPA will allow more than 99% of Australian goods export to enter Indonesia either duty-free or under improved preferential arrangement by 2020. And again, it depends on who's going to be the president. But and with the most noticeable trade benefit being in agriculture. And vice versa, also that in the, all Indonesian goods will enter um, Australia duty-free. And the trade deal will actually boost Australian export of beef and wheat to Indonesia and open um, the Indonesian market up to Australian healthcare and education provider, which I will talk um, in a minute. So, however, in the future, um, the new president actually needs to address uh, challenges faced by many Australian businesses in Indonesia. One of the main issue is that um, foreign ownership rules, by David and Paul can, can uh, uh, share about that, uh, foreign ownership rule and regulation render attractive investment in Indonesia is actually unappealing. Um, Indonesia is currently ranked number 73 among the 190 economies in terms of ease of doing business. A release, report releases by the, the, the World Bank. And again, because unable to withstand all these higher risks, Australian businesses move on to other opportunity. Uh, and again, one of the issues that Collins mentioned, religious intolerance was also a contributing factor. So last year, we actually we conducted, uh, uh, we get a funding from the Department of Foreign Affairs, we conducted a study on the perception of Australian toward Indonesia in general. Um, how do Australian business in, in Australian perceive Indonesian in general? The result shows perception perception gap. Show perception gap between the two countries, which remain unchanged. So the blue one is actually how Australian perceive Indonesia. Um, it's actually 67 percent. We had about 100. Uh, 500 Australian, and then five percent we get about 1,000 Indonesian. So 67% Australian perceive Indonesia as economically underdeveloped, and this remain unchanged. And again, only 8% of Australian actually perceive Indonesia economically developed. And this would create a challenge if you wanted to invest in Indonesia. So also the next, when we look at the quality of the products, uh, again, 65% of Australians perceive Indonesian product as a low quality. And again, this probably has to be addressed in the future. And only 9% of Australian survey perceive Indonesian of a high quality. So the election um, offer both challenges and opportunities. Um, election in Indonesia and Australia alike um, uh, could yet be a hurdle to the ratification of the long-anticipated trade agreement. Vice, and again, Vice President uh, candidate Sandiaga Uno is actually mentioned to the Australian media that the agreement is unfair, uh, that he would seek to amend a requirement around beef quota if elected. So when we look at the question that we ask, so what would happen if, you know, if Joko we win or Prabowo win? When we look at the vision and mission, between from both candidates. Um, Jokowi and Prabowo, actually there are many similarities. I'm just focusing on the economy. Uh, there are other mission efficient, but I'm focusing on, on, on the economy. As we can see on the slide, both are trying to address income inequality through small uh, medium enterprise, assisting low-income earners, 
strengthening the economy uh, through Islamic finances. So poverty is still the main issue uh, in Indonesia. And during Jokowi's first term, um, the official poverty rate has fallen from 11 to just below 10%. So what will happen um, if Jokowi wins the election? Um, Jokowi is focusing on infrastructure heavily, uh, and then manpower, and then the third is the defense budget. So Jokowi economic uh, style, called by many as Jokowinomics, uh, is angled primarily toward accelerating infrastructure development and building industrial capacity to increase Indonesia competitiveness. And again, this strongly characterized by Jokowi's um, own disposition of result-oriented leadership to get things done uh, quickly. So you can see in the last few months, you know, the MRT, the, the airport is being redeveloped. His signature uh, development concept, Indonesia Centris, is commendable in terms of promoting equitable development across the country and particularly in Eastern Indonesia. However, with a lot of heavy investment in infrastructure, the government debt actually has increased 48% in value, and this has been criticized a lot by uh, Prabowo during the four years in Jokowi administration. But the ratio remained at 29% of GDP, far below the 60% of debt limit. So in response to this problem, actually Jokowi released the draft budget for 2019. As you can see, this is probably what will happen if Jokowi uh, gets elected. The draft included increases in subsidies as well as civil servant pay and doubling the benefit to poor household. Uh, the stalled infrastructure um, uh, spending is also in line with the government's move to support the tumbling rupiah. Jokowi is cutting back a lot on the infrastructure moving forward uh, to curb import and capital good produced overseas. And you can see that this is uh, the direction of Jokowi next presidential move. And the increase in the, you can see the subsidy for it will increase. So the increase in handout will hit the budget for the infrastructure. And there will be less investment in infrastructure in the next few years. Uh, despite vast infrastructure needs in, in, in Indonesia, the budget total at 420 trillion uh, is only 2.4% increase from the current year. And this is actually the slowest growth in infrastructure budget since we total took office. So what happened if Prabowo wins? So Prabowo wins um, focusing on agriculture um, and halting food import and, in, like uh, Colin mentioned, increased military spending. Currently, military spending is actually at 0.8% uh, of the national uh, GDP, small comparison to about only 3% that Singapore spent in military. So in response, Jokowi actually will plan to increase the, the defense budget to 1.5% of GDP. So considering Prabowo political um, as well as military background, it is not surprising that he actually will adopt the nationalist approach to the economy. Uh, in, in unveiling his vision for victorious Indonesia, Prabowo plans a populist economic approach with the aim of creating jobs, improving purchasing power, and promoting industrialization. And Prabowo actually, Prabowo Kem criticized Jokowi infrastructure, said that the people can't eat those infrastructure, right? And then they eat rice staple food uh, rather than getting expensive while people buying power extra. And this is probably the direction. So finally, to conclude, uh, finally the, co the combination between the new trade and the presidential election offered many opportunities. The first opportunity that I would suggest is Australian product actually has been considered as premium and high quality by many Indonesians. 
with the new trade deal, Australia need and should increase investment in emerging markets like Indonesia. The new trade actually is going to provide more opportunity for Australia green growers, uh, horticulturalists, cattle producers, steel, copper, plastic, and education providers, health and financial services sector. Australian export of products like beef and vegetable will be the top, will be the first to reap any benefit from the deal. So another opportunity um, is actually the, in the education sector. Overseas University actually will have the opportunity to collaborate uh, to improve Indonesian education system. No Indonesian university currently at the top 500 based on the, the Times Higher Education. Um, and Indonesia announced that it will open its door to foreign university looking to operate in the country. And this is actually a move that will unlock new opportunities for Australian higher education providers. While Australia is actually still the largest um, destination for Indonesian students at about 40,000, it hasn't been changed uh, in years. However, unfortunately, that the number of Australian students coming to Indonesia has been at the lowest number in decades. Um, so to conclude, um, due to time, so the recent trade agreement offered actually an exciting investment opportunity available in Indonesia, rapidly uh, expanding economy. As Indonesia, as I said before, that is predicted to be the fourth largest economy by 2050. Post-election, um, I think it will be business as usual. Um, the new trade agreement, if it's ratified, will have more impact than the election. And the size of the trade will grow um, uh, slowly due to the new free trade agreement between Indonesia and Australia. And actually, this is the great opportunity for both Indonesia and Australia to expand their market overseas. And that's all for me. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, uh, Denny. Uh, and I've got a few questions on uh, the IACPA for you a little later. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to invite him back to the podium, to, this time to talk to us about the significance of the Indonesian elections on the Australia-Indonesia relationship. Please welcome back Professor Colin Brown. Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> Here, I want to look at the range of interests Australia has in its relationship with Indonesia and how these interests might be affected by the outcome of the elections, the why do, we, why do we need to know it part of the subtitle of this event. First, what are the interests we have in the relationship with Indonesia? Ask five people and you'll get seven answers, but uh, I'll give you some that I think. Clearly, one set of interests is commercial. We have an interest in trade with Indonesia in both goods and services and in investment. As Denny has said, Indonesia is the largest economy in Southeast Asia, 16th largest in the world, and fated to rise rapidly up the global rankings. We have a related interest in Indonesia's being a relative pros relatively prosperous and just society. Not merely that its economy grows in size, but that its distribution within Indonesia is more even than it currently is. This kind of society is likely to offer the best prospects for the development of trade and investment. And that's why, one of the main reasons why, we have a major development assistance program 
with Indonesia. We have an interest in working with Indonesia on a variety of regional security issues. One obvious area is counter-terrorism. Australians have been subject to terrorist attack in Indonesia, but of course terrorism is a much greater threat to Indonesians than it is to Australians. Terrorism destabilizes Indonesia. It's bad for Indonesia, but it's bad for our relationship with Indonesia as well. Another obvious security area is control of maritime borders between our two countries. It affects things such as drug smuggling, people smuggling, money laundering. And border control cannot be asserted unilaterally. It requires commitment from both parties, as Donald Trump is finding out. Now, those kinds of issues are specific bilateral ones. But the ANU political scientist Hugh White argues this kind of focus is insufficient to guide our relations with Indonesia. The Australian government, he argues, has dealt with Indonesia on specific issues like terrorism or boat people, but haven't tried to build the really broad base of strategic understanding and cooperation, which I think, that is to say White thinks, is going to be really essential for Australia's interests. And what White is arguing here is that although of course we do need to look at bilateral issues, we also need to look more broadly at how each of us fits into the emerging regional and probably global political architecture as well. Both our countries have the capacity, actual or potential, to influence developments in our region. We need a relationship with Indonesia grounded in mutual respect and trust in which regional issues can be discussed and either collaborations forged or conflicts avoided or at least managed. This is more likely to happen if the government in Jakarta is clearly in control of the country, strong enough to withstand the inevitable negative pressures that such negotiations would be, uh, would come. Sorry, inevitably, you know what I mean, sorry. <laughs> A government in Jakarta strong enough to withstand the criticisms it would undoubtedly get if it were to engage in such negotiations with Australia. And since both our countries are democratic in significant, albeit different ways, we need political publics which are prepared to support this kind of broader relationship. Popular Australian support for closer or more intimate relations with Indonesia at the government level is particularly crucial. Unlike countries such as China and the US, Indonesia lacks a constituency of supporters in Australia which might provide a backstop to any upheaval in the relationship due to bilateral problems. Human rights issues in China do not derail the Australia-China relationship. The economic relationship is too important, and the Chinese diaspora, quite frankly, of increasing political significance. And the Australian public's perception of the underlying value of the US alliance will also prevent any significant damage to the American relationship, no matter what the current President of the United States does. But Indonesia has nothing like this. Public opinion in Australia about Indonesia is driven by specific bilateral issues think live cattle trade, think people smuggling and the like, or broad perceptions of Indonesia 
which are often filtered through a mass media without any great level of expertise on Indonesia. We have an interest in the Australian public gaining an informed understanding of Indonesia. Not an uncritical understanding, but an informed understanding. Fine to be critical as long as you know what you're talking about. And in that context, we have an interest in an Indonesian government which facilitates such an understanding through its openness and its preparedness to engage with Australia, particularly via our news media. So, how would the outcome of the elections affect what I've suggested are our interests in the relationship? Let's look first at some of the specific bilateral issues. In the case of our business interests, I agree with Denny. The historical evidence suggests that elections do not substantially impact trade and investment decisions. But I also agree with Denny that there's a danger, particularly if Prabowo were to win, that the more protectionist, autarkic approach to the economy might gain more traction in Indonesia than it has so far. And that we might see increased economic protectionism limiting the expansion of trade and investment. And while we tend to see Joko uh, Prabowo as being the bad guy here, I don't think Jokowi is very different, quite frankly. I think pressured, he would probably go a long way down that track as well. I'm not as optimistic as Denny about the IACPA, the uh, Comprehensive Economic uh, Relations Agreement. And that's for one very pragmatic reason. This agreement has to be ratified by the Indonesian parliament. It's not enough just to have heads of government sign it. No major Indonesian political party is ideologically committed to the further liberalisation of trade and investment rules. Liberal is a rude word in Indonesian politics. Support for IACPA has no natural parliamentary constituency. Getting that agreement through the parliament will depend in large measure on the extent to which the new president is prepared to support it and the deals he can do with parliamentary parties to lock in their support. Given he negotiated and signed it, Jokowi is a better bet than Prabowo, but neither of them is guaranteed to be able to get that agreement. On anti-terrorism issues, Jokowi's position, I think, looks closer to Australian interests than does Prabowo's. This is in part because of where their respective support bases lie. No matter what Prabowo says, his support base includes extra-parliamentary organisations which, though perhaps not indulging in terrorism themselves, have nonetheless sought to justify at least some acts of religiously inspired terrorism. On the broader issue of regional security, Jokowi has the advantage of being at least a known candidate. He will likely continue to support a US presence in the region while not getting offside with China. On the latter, he will continue trying to balance Indonesia's commercial interests through a mild level of commitment to the Belt and Road Initiative with strategic concerns about issues of national sovereignty around the Natuna Islands. Making a judgment about Jokowi is difficult, sorry, making a judgment about Prabowo is difficult because he has no political track record in this area. The clearest indications of his approach to defence policy is his demand to increase substantially Indonesia's defence budget. And I would argue increasing budget is not a policy. 
It's something you might do, but what do you do with the money? That's the crucial question. There's also his approach to foreign relations generally, which, as I suggested earlier, tends to see the external world as inherently threatening and thus to be viewed with suspicion. This atti attitude could be mitigated by the appointment of a foreign minister with a rather more nuanced view of the world, but as yet it's unclear who Prabowo's foreign minister, were he to be elected, would be. In terms of Australian public perceptions of Indonesia, human rights issues will remain prominent. And here, Jokowi might be slightly better for us, although on many issues, and I have to say I think Papua is one of them, I don't think either he or Prabowo looks particularly attractive. Radicalised Islam has the capacity to affect Australian perceptions of Indonesia in a negative sense. Islamist groups will pressure whoever wins the presidency to act in ways which will seem to many of us to be illiberal. Jokowi will be vulnerable to this pressure, but perhaps Prabowo more so, simply because, again, of his support base. But here we need to be looking not simply at who wins the election, but also how they win the election. A narrow win by either candidate is likely to be contested by the other. This contestation might take legal shape in the form of a challenge through the courts. But contestation could also occur on the streets. If Prabowo loses narrowly, his supporters, especially those in organisations like the FBI, could mount mass demonstrations in major population centres. We was robbed. Were Jokowi to lose by a similarly small margin, the risk of mass demonstrations would be less in an absolute sense, but important nonetheless because they'd be likely to occur in parts of Indonesia such as Bali or North Sulawesi, which have large non-Muslim populations. So it would exacerbate problems of national unity and, and social integration. Given that we have an interest in the Indonesian government being legitimate in the eyes of its constituents, we should be hoping that the results of the election are relative, relatively clear-cut and not widely contested. We should be hoping that they are relatively free of credible claims of corruption and that the voter turnout is relatively high. Problems in any of these areas would threaten the newly elected government with a challenge to its legitimacy and authority, complicating bilateral relations, at least in the short term. Perhaps not in the long, but in the short term. Overall, my general conclusion would be that Australia's interests would be best served by a clear win by Jokowi. But let me emphasise, before anyone misinterprets what I've just said, I'm not making any judgement about which candidate would be better for Indonesia. That's a judgement for Indonesians, it's not a judgement for me. I'm simply talking about what I think as an Australian would suit Australia's interests best. So, to the $64 million question, who will win? Most of the opinion polls still show Jokowi ahead. They show the, the gap narrowing, but they show him still leading Prabowo by between 10 and 20 percentage points. And perhaps 10% of the population still undecided. I'm agnostic about those figures. I'm not an atheist, I don't thoroughly disbelieve them, but I'm certainly not a true believer either. True believer either. I suspect Jokowi will hang on and win, but by a margin very much at the lower end of that scale, not the higher. Thank you.
Uh, can I ask uh, Colin and Denny to uh, come up uh, and we'll do uh, a Q&A session. Uh, Carlia does have a microphone if you've got a, a burning question you want to ask, and we've got one there. I'll just ask the, the first question while Carlia gets the microphone to you. Now, uh, Colin, um, you talked about the, the impacts of the Indonesian elections on Australia. Uh, we're also in the middle of elections in Australia, which changes the dynamic somewhat, makes it very unique from my, uh, in memory uh, for me in recent time. Um, now, as a parent, you're supposed to love your children equally, but you always favour one over the other, don't you, parents out there? Uh, from an Indonesian perspective, um, or, in a, or an Australian perspective, is there a better mix uh, between the parties, ones that will work better with each other to allow IACPA and other initiatives to move forward? has been far more stable than Australian politics in the last decade, so I think we can learn a thing or two from Indonesia there. Now, can uh, you just announce your name? Uh, stand up if you don't mind your name and your question, please. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Emilia from Griffith University. Uh, my question will be to uh, Professor Colin Brown. First, um, who does Jokowi rely on making foreign policies of this government? Is it on State Secretariat? Parliament, military, or he has his own little advance. And then, um, with Jokowi um, using the framework of a nice guy in foreign policy, how does he exactly feel outside powers, like the ASEAN and the regional politics? And then, um, many studies on Indonesian foreign policy making uh, mention that as a former, former colonized country, Indonesia tend to avoid um, external interference in domestic but do you think uh, both candidates, Jokowi and Prabowo, keep this very uh, along? And the final question is, Jokowi applied the penalty to Australia. Does it make any changes on Australian perception of Indonesia? Are you finishing your thesis and uh, <laughs> just needed a bit of expert advice uh, tonight? <laughs> Okay, can I start with the last question? I think that's the easiest. 
Yes, to call me allowed to death penalty to go any Indonesian president will allow death So that is not an issue in the relation. It's an issue that makes Australians upset, makes me upset. I don't believe in death penalty. But I've had enough discussions with Indonesians to know, or at least to suspect, that if you had a referendum in Indonesia right now, death penalty would win. And I don't, I don't see any president likely, any politician likely to be president of Indonesia who does not support death penalty. So take that out of the equation because I don't think it makes much difference. Who influences Jokowi on foreign relations? I think he is influenced by that small team around him, including in the State Secretary. I think he's influenced by senior officers in the Foreign Affairs Department. But I think overall, in a sense, and I don't mean this in a nasty way, in a sense it's the wrong question, but I don't think he is fundamentally interested in international relations. I think he's more interested in domestic politics than international relations. So you can say, well, this person or that person influences people on foreign relations, but if that person's influencing him in a different way on domestic policy, that person will win out. So uh, I'm, I'm talking about what his foreign policy is, but I think if you had a big scale of Jokowi's activities, foreign policy would be way down there. Um, nice guy, what's his view of the world? Um, well, last time was Prabowo's description of Jokowi. But I don't think Jokowi would greatly reject it, quite frankly, because I think his position, as he sees for himself as mediator, is the kind of role he likes to think he plays. I think he has a genuinely benign view of the world, certainly as compared with Prabowo, which doesn't mean he doesn't see problems, but he doesn't see as being threatened in the way that Jokowi does. And I can't read my own handwriting without your full question. So. The last question is as a former colonist country, the temple of Pakistan is just Jokowi. Jokowi is a
um, and DPR committees will play an important role. And we don't know who will be in the DPR. We don't know who will make up the trade committees. So how long might it get stuck in the DPR before it comes into effect? So I think the, the main challenge for now is we are at the election, so we don't know what's going So the, the, the problem that I would see um, in actually, like Colin mentioned, is going to be get cancelled um, because um, the, 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 I think the candidate actually will be few is um, it. But I think if if Colin is correct, um, I think that will be the direction that the new government will take in the future. So they will push forward. And I would probably see that it's going to be slightly bit water times based on different analysis. It's not going to be full free trade because and, and, and as we looked before, Jokowi is also under pressure of the populist approach. He wanted to move from the subsidy of infrastructure, moving to the handout, because that is that is what the, the current um the wanted. So I think if you ask what would happen. I think it will go forward, um, but it will be a word that we will benefit. It's definitely first what the cattle producer believe that is actually already moving and going, um, that is also the attention of the way. And secondly, is the service sector. Because um, also, one of the issues in the open up the work of these are in the two countries, that it goes to the benefit first, if the ICP Excellent, thank you. Just your name, please, and the question. My name is Anthony. Uh, the question is, and we've seen this before about the military re-emerging again, uh, I don't want to sound schizophrenic, but are we likely to get a different answer from the rise of the military that we did back in the Sukhanta years, where basically your qualification to run a business is as long as you were a general in your first name of value? No. Uh, I don't, uh, to be a bit more useful, I don't see uh, the likelihood of the repetition of the New World period and the role that the military played there. That was a creature of its time. It was a creature of its international time, as well as a creature of its domestic time. And I just don't think that those contextual factors are still around today. Um, the military will continue to play a role in the Indian economy, and it will continue to be hanging around there in, in politics, but I don't see it as taking up anything like the role that it had from, well, in fact, this, this kind of period from about the late 1950s through to the end of Sahara uh, at the end of the 1990s. Any other questions? Uh, Talia, down the front. Uh, Mark Robinson, I think the only politician in the room. Um, but, um, and uh, can I acknowledge and thank you all tonight on behalf of everyone here. I think it's been, the presentation's been excellent and uh, uh, very, uh, very good, uh, good information. Uh, also, in terms of the, the role of Griffith University, can I say as a, as a, uh, a graduate of the Master of International and Asian Studies program there, which was an amazing program that's very, very, been very helpful to me in terms of and what I do in politics, but um, and then I'll be seeing for all they do, can I acknowledge him. Um, two, two questions. The live cable trade. Um, interested in terms of uh, how the trade has recovered, in what shape it's in, uh, and the political question in terms of has our relation has our trade recovered 
and has our relationship politically uh, recovered in terms of the, the political stock or the, the, the political capital that was burned at that time and uh, I think under the Rudd administration if I'm right. Uh, but um, and the other question uh, in terms of um, uh, my term, uh, and I forget your exact term, but um, political advocates for Indonesia and strong Indonesian-Australian relations. Uh, I'd have to agree with you about there being a vacuum or a deficit. There doesn't seem to be as many people prepared to stand up in that, in that zone, in that public space, and sometimes take the to and fro and, and perhaps the uh, meat in the sandwich that you might be if you're not careful there. How can politicians better uh, work that relationship in that space? Thank you, Mark. Danny, do you want to start? Uh, I, I don't have the exact number, but this what I thought is correct and seeing is actually at the almost back at the normal. However, what's different this time is there is a stronger exposure and regulation than before. Uh, I think the expectation from the Australian government on how they treat the the, the uh, has been much more stronger. But I don't I've heard that it hasn't been fully recovered because of the stringer, uh, more strict rules. Uh, uh, I was hoping that because of the pressure coming from the Australian uh, businesses and Indonesia as well, uh, it will have that be more particular after the election because they certainly can see at this point. We haven't synchronized our presentations, so we're very easy to disagree on things. I don't disagree with what Danny has just said, by the way. But I think there are two other things that have, that have happened. One is there's been an expansion of the feedlot industry in Indonesia. And one of the objectives, objectives of that is to reduce the volume of the live cattle import. The other is that there's been a substantial increase, I don't know the numbers currently, in the import of meat from India. And that's been, as I understand it, primarily buffalo meat rather than beef. Marketed as Australian beef quite often. Well, I don't know how it's marketed because that's what you guys do. Um, but I think that we've now got competition in that uh, meat market that we haven't had in the past. So the total volume of cattle is in the main world recovered, but the demand for meat has increased substantially. So our share of the uh, meat trade in India, I think, has in fact gone down in those reasons. And I would say to that, in terms of the relationship as well, that uh, political point scoring never works in either country, does it, with any country. And so whilst there were incidents that had to be treated and, and looked at, um, some of those were quite isolated. And to represent that as the whole of Indonesia was not well received there. So I would say it hasn't recovered to where it was. But that itself... Uh, sustainability goal has been in place now almost 20 years by Indonesia and, and that was there to protect itself from shocks like that from Australia and others. What can politicians do to improve the community support for the relationship being whatever? I'm tempted to say, I'm tempted to say, keep out of it! <laughs> 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 because I think I'm <laughs> Being more serious, but this is a long-term issue. If there's a simple answer to it, believe me, I've written my book about it already, and I've signed copies for you. <laughs> there, there isn't a simple answer to this. I'm in the education industry, and it is an industry, these days, 
one of the things that greatly disappoints me, including about an institution not a million miles away, <laughs> the extent to which the study that need has declined so much in the past 20 years. Institutions which used to be at the forefront of the study of Asia or the study of Indonesia now are not. We cannot have a society which has an informed understanding of Indonesia if the only place they learn about Indonesia is in the Australian. Now, I'm not getting into Australia. Put in any newspaper, put in the City Morning Herald, put in the Age, put in the AFR, it doesn't matter. Journalists, firstly, for the most part, are not, are not intended to be country experts. They might have more knowledge than the average guy, but they're not intended to be country experts. If you're an expert on Indonesia, you'll, you'll be unemployed as a journalist. Because there, there simply isn't enough stuff to write. It goes back to what education institutions do, and, and I'll say this once and then get shot down and I'll leave. Education institutions have stopped taking risks. They've stopped saying, it's important that we do this, and in the short term, the risk is that we'll run into a loss. But in the long term, it's important that we do this. We don't do that. We try to balance books on a yearly basis, and in some respects, even on a less than yearly basis. You cannot run a serious education institution on that basis. I'll stop. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm conscious uh, of time we have gone over, but uh, very, very valuable. Before I, I uh, ask uh, Professor uh, Caitlin uh, Byrne to give her vote of thanks, I do uh, want to uh, just point out, uh, is Sarah Smart here from Asia Pacific City Summit? So turn around so you can see Sarah. Sarah runs uh, the Asia Pacific City Summit, which will be held in Brisbane from 7 to 10 July. Our Vice Chairman, David Wijaya, has been working very closely with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to bring several mayors from Indonesia, hopefully some governors down as well, to the Asia Pacific City Summit. So if you've got the same passion, obviously, Colin and, and Denny have, uh, for Indonesia, I recommend you, you reach out to Sarah, get some more information about that. Uh, we are working with Sarah at getting a discount for uh, uh, AIBC members, and I'm sure we can somehow wrangle that into AIBC and Griffith Asia Institute uh, members and partners. It's, uh, I've been to the Asia Pacific City Summit before, and it's a very worthwhile event to attend. So I highly recommend that. Uh, I also would like to thank uh, Kalia from uh, Griffith Asia Institute, who's organised everything tonight. So thank you very much, Kalia. You've done a terrific job. And Taran Juice from uh, our side at the Australia-Indonesia Business Council. Thank you, Taran, as well. Um, and uh, uh, lastly, uh, can I please... Uh, Please join me in thanking uh, uh, Professor Colin Brown and uh, Dr. Denny Harley, who've done a tremendous job in explaining Indonesian politics to us. Uh, and we did get a prediction from Colin. Denny thought he was going to get away without having to, to pick a winner. Denny, a winner? Jokowi by a small margin. Jokowi by a small margin. There you go. Thank you. Please thank our speakers. And uh, please, uh, please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Caitlin Byrne from Griffith Asia Institute to close the evening with a vote of thanks. Now, I'm not mic'd up. Can you hear me up the back? Great, thank you. Look, it is my great pleasure to be here tonight to deliver a vote of thanks. I think we've actually 
been treated to a masterclass on Indonesian politics and certainly gained some really powerful insights into one of the single most important electoral events that's happening right on our doorstep in Indonesia. This is a year of elections right around the world. So we know that we're facing an election. We'll be heading to the polls on the 18th of May here. Uh, Indonesia in two days. India is forthcoming. Philippines, uh, we have an imperial transition in Japan. So more than anything, I think this reflects the fact that we live in a region that is in transition. Uh, and we hope that that transition will happen smoothly. But I think more importantly for us is that we are very clear-eyed and we understand the landscape um, that we find ourselves in and the state of the neighbourhood that we're in tonight, certainly when it comes to Indonesia. Um, we really were able to get some deep insights that we wouldn't necessarily pick up from the media where we see a real lack of coverage of these important issues. Last year, at the end of the year, the Group of Asia Institute hosted former Indonesian Foreign Minister Marty Natalagawa and he delivered our Asia lecture. For those who are in the room, you might recall that one of the key sentences Marty delivered was around leadership. And he said, you know, in this world today, we have a proliferation of leaders, but in fact, we are potentially facing a deficit when it comes to leadership. Um, and this is really an issue for all of us to be considering, not here just in Australia, but also in the way that um, these political events are unfolding in our own region. The election in Indonesia is striking, and Colin, thank you for running through some of those key factors. Many of those factors we face um, in Australia as well, you know, the, the potential for compromise, the fact that electoral promises are not necessarily delivered in policy, um, the significance of the fringe increasingly in uh, determining where our politics heads. I don't think we do as well on the hoax front. Um, we have something, some way to go there, but I think we also see missteps and gaps um, that play into a narrative that, that, that sometimes devalues the significance of politics. We're both facing issues in relation to the young influences in our communities and how they turn up um, and make their voices at election time. But I think you really gave us insights into the national narrative driving those factors and why we've got to be so sensitive to that. Denny, you reminded us that economics often is a marker of the closeness of countries. Um, again, Marty reminded us last year that we are neighbours, but in fact often more like strangers. We have a relationship with Indonesia that is more marked by the ups and the downs and the crises, rather than the coherence and the consistency and the closeness. But one thing he did say is that often when we face these crises, we're very good at managing our way through them. Um, and that's a real positive for us, and I think a real positive going forward. So I think there's much to look at. This is not just about looking at elections in isolation. This is really about the strategic place of leadership in our region, the place of cooperation, and how our leaders hopefully will navigate not just our bilateral relationship, but our regional relationships going forward, and, and that's increasingly important to Australia's position in this neighbourhood. Ladies and gentlemen, we couldn't have had two better speakers take us through tonight's topic 
please join me again in thanking both Professor Colin Brown and Professor Danielle Lee. We're very happy that they're here with Group of Institute. Please join me in thanking them.